We are live from the great state of Tennessee. I'm your host, Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranoia, the podcast where we break down conspiracy theories and unsolved mysteries and separate fact from fiction. So once again, we are back. Had another short hiatus. Life, work, just really busy time of the year right now. Um, My goal is still to post on Mondays. Today's obviously not Monday. My goal long-term still is to continue weekly episodes on Monday, just trying to figure out my new life schedule and try to find a day that's going to work best. I said I was doing really good, went over a year without missing a single week, but things have changed. Life has changed. Um, Just not as much free time as I used to have, which is good and all, making progress in life, but the listeners out there still want material, so I'm working on finding a time so I can continue to put out weekly episodes, um, hopefully, especially going into the new year. My goal is to have one every single week in 2022. Can't make any guarantees, never know what in life is going to come up, but I'm going to do everything I can to get these episodes out on a more consistent basis. And speaking of, like I said, a lot has happened in the month of November, Um That would have been a lot of stuff that was covered in my stories of the week. The biggest one, if you missed it, which we did an actual full episode on this. And I said I would do a follow-up episode if something ever happened. And then I didn't because I fell behind. But Britney Spears has been freed from her conservatorship. This happened a couple of weeks ago. I think it was November 13th. Um, But basically, um, Britney Spears was freed from her conservatorship. After a judge ruled in favor of termination, uh, that was Friday the 13th, ending the 13-year arrangement that had legally stripped the pop star from making her own personal and financial decisions. The L.A. County Superior Court Judge Brenda Penny ruled, quote, the court finds the conservatorship of Britney Jean Spears is no longer required. Like I said, that was effective immediately. Um, It was a very short hearing. There was different meetings and stuff prior to then that was basically just a ruling um that was quick and easy and i mean it's just obviously if you listen to the episode or you know the situation is just way too long this should have not have one it should have never happened hypothetically speaking let's say it just had to happen because you can't change history it should have never went on this long like I, i did episode on it you can go back and listen i'm trying not to go on a rant But anybody that knows me knows I was passionate about this. There's just no way that someone that is going on tour doing remembering dances, remembering lyrics, teaching her own people. She didn't have a dance person. She was teaching her own background dancers how to dance. So how can someone that is mentally insane or incapable of surviving on their own do something like this? I can't even teach my own self to dance. I can't even I have a hard time enough getting my dog to walk in a straight line. And this person is teaching multiple people steps to complicated dance moves, but yet she can't have access to her own money because she can't function as an adult. I mean, it's just absolutely ridiculous. In my mind, there should be like an investigation, obviously, or some kind of bribery or something going on with these judges because it literally made no sense. It's 13 years. Life is short. I mean, we all know. I mean, we've all experienced like Life is short. 13 years of her life is gone to absolute stupidity. Um, But we're here now. She's out. She's free. Um, We'll continue to monitor it. The legal things are not completely over. I think there's still 
some more hearings and some more other things that are going to go on. But for now, mission accomplished, the Free Britney movement. Like I said, this wouldn't have happened without the Free Britney movement. Like, not necessarily me, obviously, but just the people that were making documentaries, people that were outside the courthouse doing their things, people on social media tweeting about it. Like, this was an actual movement that succeeded. If this didn't have national attention, it probably never would have ended. They just could have kept going under the radar. But once people started keep seeing what the madness was going on with this, they started to become more passionate, started talking about it, and they had no choice but to reverse the decision. But for now, like I said, we'll keep track of it. We'll see where it goes, but we'll get into the actual story for today. So it's always funny when I do my episodes, there's a lot of stuff that I end up learning, whether it's something about the conspiracy or the mystery or just some small information. I always end up learning something new myself, which is, makes this podcast fun. So I'm assuming, especially if you're sports people, but if you're not a sports person, everybody knows what the Indianapolis 500 is, uh, at least most people. If you're not in America, um, the Indianapolis 500 is um, basically a giant racetrack and for IndyCar, and that is one of like the biggest motor racing car races in america every single year it's a big deal um it's always on national tv so everybody in america knows what it is and i said i mean i know what it is i don't think i've ever really sat down to watch it but apparently the indy 500 is not actually in indianapolis like i thought so the it's called indianapolis motor speedway but it's actually right outside of indianapolis and the name of the city that it's technically in is Speedway, Indiana. Um, I did not know that. I mean, it's literally right outside of Indianapolis. But the Speedway is actually in a city called Speedway, Indianapolis, or in Speedway, Indiana. So that was a fun tidbit that I did not know. And that's what we're going to turn our attention to. Um, we're going to go into the late 1970s in this city called Speedway, Indiana. And we are at a restaurant that I have vaguely heard of, but was not alive to see it's in its peak or see it, period. And this is a restaurant by the name of Burger Chef. Now, if you're, I don't even know what age you put this in. Obviously, if you're a little bit older than me, older than my sisters, probably old enough to be my parents' age, I'm assuming you may really, really remember this. Um, I mean, this was into the 80s, so it's not like it's super old, but its prime was in the 1970s. So Burger Chef was just a regular American fast food chain. Um, it started off in Indianapolis, Indiana, but it ended up becoming like really big. Um, I think in 1972, it had 1,200 locations in the United States. Only restaurant that had more was McDonald's, and they only had 400 more locations. And you know how big McDonald's is. McDonald's has always been big in America since it's existed. So to be the second biggest fast food chain behind McDonald's is a big deal. Like this was a very big company. Um, just some things that they had. They had the, the Fun Burger. They had the Fun Meal. Um, they had... All kind of just different stuff, um, kind of like how McDonald's has their um, Ronald McDonald and his friends, people, I can't remember their names. They had um, magicians and vampires, basically almost the same type things as McDonald's. So, I mean, they're like Coke and Pepsi, basically, back then. I mean, they were 
huge, huge, huge chains. But they were eventually bought out by the company that owned Hardee's. And basically, so through the 80s into early 1990, basically all these chains were turned into Hardee's or they were torn down or just sold. But basically, Hardee's, some Hardee's you see now, small towns, probably used to be a burger chef. So we go back to the year 1978. Like I said, where Burger Chef is basically at its peak at this current moment. And we are at a Burger Chef here in Speedway, Indiana. This is a very small town, um, obviously. Very, very, very small town. Your normal small town where crime usually doesn't happen. Things are really easy, really quiet. Everybody knows the neighbor. Everybody knows the teacher. Like it's that type of community up until 1978. And for whatever reason, 1978, things just started to really go downhill in this city. Um, prior to what even happened, what we're talking about. Um, so on July 29th of 1978, 65-year-old 60 woman named Julia Cyphers was shot to death inside her garage. Um, and it was so, I mean, the crime never happened in the city. It seemed like it was so random and it was unsolved, but some people kind of just brushed it off as, okay, maybe this was just a one-time thing, someone passing by, nothing serious. But then uh, a couple months later, between September 1st and September 6th, a series of eight bombings occurred. The bombs were placed in trash cans beneath a police patrol car in the town bowling alley, and finally in a gym bag in the parking lot of Speedway High School. The bombings only injured two people, but the injuries were devastating. The final bomb blew off the leg of a Vietnam veteran and severed an artery in the leg of his wife. So I don't know what's going on here. I mean, think about here. I mean, here in Tennessee, we have like McMinnville, wherever you live, everybody has like that super small town. One gas station may not even have a Walmart. We're talking about this town. All of a sudden, throughout just one week, just bombs are just exploding in every maze. I mean, there's not much there. So the school, the bowling alley, police car, the gym. I mean, everything that was major in that city, bombs were exploding. And just like just super random and crazy, which we'll dive into if it ties into any of this. At the end, but like I said, by this time, the city is just completely shooken, which I don't blame them. I mean, every major place is getting blown up. You got Vietnam vets that are not safe. No one feels safe and even in their homes or going out grocery shopping. And the public confidence in the police is extremely low because none of these mysteries are getting solved. So everybody is already completely on edge with everything that's going on. But... Unfortunately, things were only going to get worse from here. This is the story of the Burger Chef murders. So like I said, we're here. It's a little after midnight on the night of November 17th, 1978. A teenager named Brian Crane was driving to his home in Speedway, and he decided to stop by his workplace to visit his co-workers. Um, like I said, he worked at the Speedway Burger Chef. 
Knowing that the restaurant closed at 11, he wanted to pop in and see if his friends needed help closing the shop, which is not something I would do just because I'm not that good of, at least back in my retail days, I'm not that dedicated of a worker. We're talking about a small town, good people. I mean, I, I get it. He's just going to hang out, see if they need any help to get out of there faster. But when he got there, he found that the restaurant was empty, but it wasn't closed. Doors were open. Lights were on. Wasn't like they had shut down early or got out of there. Um, it was still open, but there's just no one there. No one was there. The four, four employees scheduled to work that night were 20-year-old Jane Freet, 16-year-old Daniel Davis, 16-year-old Mark Flemings, and 17-year-old Ruth Shelton. Like I said, they were all nowhere to be found, but the doors were open, lights were on, registers not cashed out. Like it's not like they got out of there early. So he called around. Um, Brian called around in search of the assistant manager, which was Jane. Um, didn't get an answer. So he called the Speedway police and they basically just immediately blew him off. Um, they basically just said it was a bunch of careless teenagers that quit on the job and went out to go hang out on town. So he gets blown off by the police, which we'll keep, keep that in mind. Um, police play a big part in all this that is going on. Um, but they completely blown off. So there's no one looking for them except for Brian. Um, he goes home and like I said, there's nothing he can do. Um, but wait, none of the four teenagers showed up at home that night or the next day at Burger Chef for their shifts the families became extremely concerned. Um, the assistant manager, Jane, her Chevy, uh, I think it was a Chevy Vega, um, was located in the middle of town the next morning. And that's when it became clear, okay, something is going on here. Like, no one's shown up. All four of them literally have not been anywhere to be found. And the assistant manager's car is just sitting in the middle of town empty. So finally, the police kick into high gear and launch a search for the four missing people. So like I said, we said their names, but they deserve to at least, you know, have something said about them. I try to give at least a little background about these people and not just give all the attention to the suspect or whatever person we're talking about. So like I said, Jane Freet was the assistant manager, 20, 20 years old, and she was a college student. Um, and like I said, these are all like, not that it matters, even if they weren't good kids, no one deserves for this to happen to them. But this is a very, very good group of people. Um, they say her extra list of extracurricular activities were very long and distinguished. Um, she was on yearbook staff, choir, drama, um, everything. Her nickname was Sweet Jane, and people remembered her because of her beaming smile. And she was always positive. Um, she had been working for the Burger Chef Company since she was 17 years old. Then we have Daniel Davis. He was a 16-year-old high school junior. Um, he had recently joined the Friday night shift after another employee quit a week prior. So he wasn't even supposed to really work that day. He was covering for an employee that quit. They say that he brought jokes and laughter to the team um, in his spare time. He explored photography, um, and he had basically made his homemade dark room in his house. Um, so photography was basically his passion on the burger chef grill was Mark Flemings, um, a 16 year old sophomore at Speedway high school. Um, he had six older siblings, um, was described as friendly. Um, his parents allowed him to get a job because it was within walking distance of his home. 
he grew up in a very strict religious household. Um, not that that matters, but just some background on him. Um, but he came said these are not people that are just out in the streets just doing anything. Like they all come from good homes and stuff like that. And then lastly, there's Ruth Shelton. Um, she was, they say she was intelligent, driven. She was an honor student. She aspired to be a computer scientist one day. Um, she was very active in her youth ministry at the local church. Um, and she studied music at what is now the University of Indianapolis. Like I said, she was nowhere. She was not college age, but she was just so advanced that she was basically getting early college credits. Um, like I said, just four kids, good kids, not in any kind of trouble that would have had someone after them, you know, full of promise, full of potential. And said, unfortunately, had their lives taken away from them way too soon. Like I said, Brian arrived there shortly after midnight. Um, and as far as what we said, we know it was open, but um, just some other details about what actually was inside. So the safe in the office was wide open and empty, um, cleared of $581 in cash and some other valuables. The purses that belonged to Jane and Ruth were still in the office. Um, over $100 that were in the cash register did not get touched. So basically, if this was a robbery, they did a very bad job of getting all the cash. The one day, if it was a robbery, they did all this for $581. And if it was a robbery, they didn't, they went straight to the safe, didn't even bother getting to the cash register, which is interesting, but we'll see. So basically, Brian, after this all happened, Brian called around to see if he could track Jane. Um, he called another burger chef and the manager hadn't heard from them. So like he said, um, that manager told Brian to call the police, which we already discussed. He already did. Um, the Speedway police were less concerned by what they found inside the restaurant that night. Like, yes, the back door was open. Purses were left. But still, the responding officers still said that it was teenage carelessness and they had just ran out and gone partying. Um, he said that they would turn up soon enough and police told friends and families of the victim that once the cash ran out and the hangovers wore off, they would come home. And this is for those of you that actually do true crime. You see stuff like this all the time. Like I listen to tons of true crime podcasts and it's not specific to these police officers, even though they're horrible at their jobs. This happens a lot, especially back before social media, 70s, 80s, when you see a lot of these true crime cases like runaways did happen a lot back then. Like there's no social media, no tracking. If you wanted to run away, you probably, it's pretty easy to just fall off the face of the earth. Or if you want to go do something reckless a night on the town, there's no cell phone, no one to call you. You disappear and you show up when you show up. So I'm assuming things like this probably did happen all the time. So it led the police officers that night initially to say, okay, well, this is probably what's happening. Um, but who just breaks into a safe, leaves the purse, and goes out for a night on the town? Like it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. They could have at least did a little bit due diligence, like we all know. The first forty-eight hours, when it comes to these type things, are very important. Um, but these police officers failed miserably, which we'll continue to get into. But like, and that's the reason why I went into background about the four people is because. 
what they just said these people are doing does not match these four employees at all. Like honor students, active in their church, good kids, no arrest records, not the type that are just like drinking underage. Like these are like you're perfect. No, no one's perfect, but these are your really good kids. These are not the type that would steal from a safe and leave the restaurant wide open. Like it just doesn't fit it. And Brian obviously doesn't believe this, but at the moment there is nothing that he can do. Um, and like I said, then the, the main problem is the fact that they didn't do anything that night is crucial for a bunch of reasons. One, you got to catch them that night. So the first 48 hours, but two, a new shift of employees came into the restaurant the next morning and scrubbed the place from top to bottom because in their minds, they don't know that this is a crime scene. They just think the last shift did a horrible job of cleaning. So guess what? We got to clean up after them. Anyone that works fast food or retail knows, hey, the closers did a bad job of closing. Now we got to clean up after them. So not only do we not have anything going on that night to find them, but the next crew comes the next morning and cleans up any type of DNA or evidence or anything that would have been super crucial. Like this is just how bad these police officers messed up. Said the crime scene was completely cleaned and sanitized without any kind of evidence to speak of. And like I said, it would haunt the speedway police forever. Um, It's one of those things that they still talk about now. Um, Years later, Marion County Detective Virgil Vandergriff um, gave an interview with Indianapolis Monthly, and he says in a direct quote, they didn't process it as a murder. They didn't know it was a murder. Police didn't have a clue what was going on at the restaurant. They kind of messed up the crime scene. Well, yeah, obviously. But um, like I said, it's easy to say hindsight's twenty twenty. but I just don't get how you look at the back door open the safe open, the purse is still there and just be like, yeah, they ran out for a night on the town in this small, tiny town. Like they just, they just batched this up. So, so bad. The next morning, like I said, the, once the cars are found, once the, well, the assistant manager's car is found, they finally take it serious, but it's way too late by then. Cause there's no crime scene. Um, so they basically have to sit and wait. Um, assuming like a ransom call would come in or a confession. They they were blind. They didn't do anything the night before. They didn't have a clue what to do. They did get lucky to an extent. Um, this happened at the night of the 17th. The morning of Sunday, November 19th, the police received a call from a rural area in Johnson County, um, which is about 20 miles south of Speedway. Two people were walking around their property and they had discovered dead bodies laying face down in the leaves in the dirt. Um, when investigators arrived, basically their worst fears about this situation were confirmed. Ruth Shelton and Daniel Davis were side by side, brutally executed via several 38 caliber gunshot wounds to their head. Um, literally execution style. A few yards away, the body of Jane Freet was found with a broken blade from a five-inch honey knife into her sternum. Down the hill, Mark Flemings laid dead from a severe beating with a chain-like instrument. Um, and he said, this is very, very, very brutal type 
murder. Um, usually I get better at getting um, heads up on certain episodes. Um, apologize for that if you're listening in the car or anything. But this was a very, very, very brutal murder scene. And just like the police handling of the Burger Chef crime scene, they did not do a very good job of this one either. Um, I think another investigator um, in a book said, quote, as various departments converged on the site, some drove through areas that should have been sealed off. There were rumors that one of the bodies was moved before the coroner or evidence technician arrived on scene. Allegedly, one of the officers took a piece of identification with him and didn't realize it until several weeks later. I don't get how you accidentally take up someone's ID off of a dead body and forget you grabbed it. Um, it was just, I mean, for better lack of words, just a crap show. Like, I don't, like I said, I mean, this was a small town and they had never probably dealt with something like this before. But still, I mean, you're trained, you're a police officer. Like, these are things, you know take the ID. You don't grab a body. You don't drive through a crime scene with a truck. Like, I mean, these are things that you would think are common sense. And these police officers are just completely, completely destroying this. It's just everything. So with little to go on, the police assume that the murders have resulted from a robbery gone wrong. Um, police wondered if maybe Mark Flemings, the one that was scheduled, wasn't even supposed to work, he was covering for another employee. The police wondered if maybe Flemings had recognized the robbers. And as a result, basically, these people killed all of them to eliminate any witnesses. I'm not sure where they get that from. Um, I think Mark Flemings is. Um, yes, Mark Flemings was a black male. Um, not sure if that's something to do with it, but it's they I don't from the research I've done. There's no reason to think he had anything to do with the perpetrators. So it just seems random. They're like, okay, well, maybe this guy knew them and then the other three died because they knew him. I just seems like off the wall. Only thing I can think of is that, but I don't know. Uh, I said the victims were all still fully clothed in their brown and orange burger chef uniforms. A few of them had cash in their pockets. Um, they all had jewelry and watches on them. Um, so it just makes you wonder how you can say this is a robbery gone wrong. Um, when they have cash on their body, their watches, their necklaces, their earrings are still on them. Like what kind of robbery is this? He got $581 out the safe. Didn't get money from the cash register. And let everybody keep their jewelry on even after he's murdered them. So the whole robbery gone wrong doesn't make any sense. But again, these police officers we're talking about are clueless. So that's just basically what they're running with for the current moment. So before the bodies are found on the 18th that Saturday, a 16-year-old male called the Speedway police and told them he had seen two men lurking around the Burger Chef restaurant shortly before closing time. Um, that night before, according to the boy, the men who were both white in their 30s approached him and his girlfriend as they were sitting in the parking lot of the Dunkin Donuts next door to the Burger Chef. They told them to get out of there because, quote, there have been lots of vandalism going on. Um, don't know why you get out of there because of vandalism, but basically they were from what seems they were just trying to get rid of any witnesses. 
He says one of the men had a beard and the other one was blonde and clean shaven. Um, the bearded man did the talking and he kept a handkerchief over his mouth while he spoke. Now, because this is the only thing we got to go off. So normally, you know, this is normal. You get your composite sketches from the witnesses. But the police did something very, very, very unusual. They used the composite sketches to have forensic artists carve full-scale clay models of the suspect. Now, if you want to see this, I mean, this is creepy. Like, it's just weird and just creepy looking. If you want to see what this looks like, all you got to do is Google Burger Chef Murder, Burger Chef Murders Clay Bust. Um, all the first pictures will pop up. And these things, I'm telling you, are creepy. Now, they're very detailed. I will say that. They're very, very detailed. The person that did this did a great job, but this is creepy. I would not want to be in a room looking at that. So very, very creepy clay models of the people that did this. Um, like I said, the composite sketch is really spot on as far as the detail, but they are creepy, creepy looking, and I have no clue on earth why in the world they did this. But they're out there. They're there. They obviously didn't work which we'll continue to get into. So at the moment, police have nothing to go on. They're pleading and they've lost all hope. The city's basically lost all hope that it's going to get signed. So basically, um, Burger Chef, the actual Burger Chef, since this, the actual Burger Chef company, they post a $25,000 cash reward for any information leading to an arrest. Another person donated $10,000 anonymously. Steak and Shake added several thousand to the reward as well but no reliable information came through um, as far as when it came to getting that reward. Police did get a few hits from the composite drawings and clay busts. Like I said, they're very detailed. They're very good. Um, so they did get some hints from people when it comes to that. Um, reportedly, a man who resembled one of the sketches was overheard in a Greenwood bar um, south of Indianapolis bragging about the murders. Someone contacted the police and Detective Virgil Vandergriff went to the bar undercover to observe the man. Um, he ended up, I guess, getting a drink with the man. And um, just like the witness said, the man was bragging loudly about robbing and killing the burger chef workers. Um, he even snapped the pull cue over his knee to illustrate how he um, killed one of the kids that November night. So police or the, yeah, the police come and arrest this man and bring him in for questioning. Um, of course, the man denies all involvement once in police custody. Um, investigators administered a polygraph test and he passed the polygraph test. Now, today's age, polygraph, we do more research. We have more science, more knowledge. Polygraphs are easy to pass if you know what's going on and are easy to fail if you're just nervous. They do not actually confirm guilt or innocence. But in 1978, this was actually seen as conclusive evidence and not just random science. So because he passed the polygraph test, the police let the man go. Before he left, however, he gave the police names of a few men involved in a, quote, fast food robbery gang, whatever that even is. But based on this information, the police actually do locate a bearded suspect in the nearby town of Franklin. Um... And he had a likeness to the composite drawing and also didn't have an alibi 
for the nights of the murder. What's even more interesting is his neighbor was a clean-shaven man with fair hair and basically spot on for the second composite sketch. So police asked the bearded man to come in for a lineup, but when he showed up, he had shaved his beard. It was the first time in five years he had shaved his beard. So, um, sounds kind of suspicious. Um, they ask you to come in. Hey, you're going to do a lineup, see if they can identify you. And you show up completely clean shaven for the first time in five years. I'm not saying he's guilty, but I mean, come on now. Let's, we could kind of put one and one together. Um, but that is all circumstantial evidence. So you know how the law works. So you got to have hard, concrete evidence. So it works for him. If it actually was him, it actually did work. Um, they tried to offer both suspects plea deals, but they refused to talk. And without any hard evidence, the police had to let them go and couldn't pursue it anymore until they could get more information, which they didn't. So if you're able to put one and two together, the actions of this dude, how convenient it is that these sketches are literally spot on. I mean, common sense would tell you these two were probably the person they were sitting in prison or I mean, they were sitting in the jail um, being interviewed. But because there was no DNA, because they didn't start a crime scene that night, they have literally nothing to compare, nothing to go off to. And these men just walk off free right out the door or at least that's what I thought. But the story continues on we go to november of 1984 exactly six years after the burger chef murders speedway investigators receive a call from the pendleton correctional facility we have a man named donald wayne forrester a 34 year old sex offender who is at the beginning of a 95 year sentence for assault um, sexual assault says he had information not just a tip he wanted to confess to the burger chef murders now, originally, the police were kind of skeptic. Like I said, he was a sex offender um, serving a 95-year sentence and was about to be transferred to another facility. Um, so they kind of just thought that he was just trying to basically delay his movement with this. Um, but as the more they start talking to them, the more they start to think, okay, maybe this guy is on to something. Maybe he's not lying. On November 17th, that night, Donald Forrester was living in Speedway, um, and he grew up in the area where the four bodies were discovered. Um, so once he said that, they were able to bring him to the actual, to Marion County, where they are located, for direct questioning. Um, from there, Forrester claimed to be the one who executed Daniel and Ruth with the 38. Even more interesting, the detectives drove Forrester to the field where the bodies had been found, and he was able to pinpoint exactly where each body had originally been located, which, to my knowledge, this was not in the newspaper, like that specific information. Um, so with that, they're like, okay, there got to be something here. So between 1984 and 1986, Forrester gradually continues to open up with more information. He says that the night after the murders, he and his wife drove out to the field so he could pick up the gun casings. Once he found them, they drove home and he flushed them down the toilet of his old house. Forrester's now ex-wife confirms this story. 
So why his ex-wife would just be like, yeah, he did this random thing he didn't do. Um, I don't know. Police got a, a warrant to search the septum tank of the old address. They dug through eight years of raw sewage and guess what they find? 38 caliber shell casings. And again, Forrester um, continues to give out um, more information. He says that, which this was originally their theory that something had to do with drugs. He confirms that. He says that James was indeed in bad with some drug dealers. He owed money to the wrong people. So that night, a group of dealers, including Forrester himself, went to Burger Chef to put pressure on James. When they showed up and began to threaten to um, hurt his sister, if he didn't come up with the money, um, Mark tried to defend her. Um, And this started out in basically a fight. Mark fell and hit his head, and they believed that he was dead. So thinking that they were about to go down for murder, the drug dealers decided then and there to eliminate the witnesses. They put all four of the Burger Chef employees in Jane's car and drove them to the middle of town. Then they dumped James Chevy Vega in the middle of nowhere and hopped into their getaway car. Um, Forrester told the police that they drove the kids to the woods and executed all of them. Um, And he described in detail how each one of them died, which fit exactly the description of how they died. Like, they all didn't die the same way. Two died execution style um, and then two next to each other. And then two died other ways and not in the same area. And he was spot on with all this information. So, I mean, this confession is about as clear cut as you can get. Um, police had their man. Um, Forrester even offered three other names of the men that were involved. But in November of 1986, someone in the police department leaked information about Forrester to the press. Um, I guess he didn't want his name out there in the press. He just wanted it to be under wraps. And so once the press starts releasing his name in newspapers, he changes his mind immediately and recants his statement. And without his cooperation, they weren't able to locate any more physical evidence to make a case against him or his accomplices. So with no actual lead in him, you know, saying, oh, I lied. There's nothing they can do. And the case would stay cold forever. Forrester died of cancer in prison in 2006. So whatever else he knew about the case, if he actually did know something about the case, basically died with him because he's the only one that knows the names of the other people that allegedly helped him. And that's where we here are here now. Um, very end of 2021. It's still cold. Um, it's still open. They have not closed the case. It's a cold case, but it's not closed. They say that they still get tips about the Burger Chef murders to this day. Um, so many investigators have come through, um, and are they still digging, trying to come through it? Um, and Ruth Shelton's sister, um, says, quote, we don't have all the answers and there's someone out there that does. I hope that before my time on earth is gone, that I have those answers. Um, first Sergeant, um, Bill, Bill Dalton also basically says the same thing in a statement, quote, Somebody knows somebody has carried this secret for 40 years. 
and it's time to unload that secret. Now, if that person, whoever knows, is still alive, we do not know. I mean, 40 years is a long time. But if these people, it's like all these true crime cases we talk about, um, or even the one that we did about the Snapchat murders, these people, there's people out there, may not be a lot, either it could be the men that helped, if this was multiple people, which I'm saying, I'm assuming one person could not get four people into a car and pull this off. So I'm going to go with it was a multiple people theory. So if we are to believe that Forrester did this with the help of other people, Pro Azar, if not all those other men that helped are alive, one of them is alive and they have to live with this forever. Um, maybe one day on their deathbed, when they get older, they will confess. But either they know people they've told or know their best friends know maybe a family member someone out there that is walking earth right now knows like with most true crime cases and they either will take it to the grave with them or sometime one random day or maybe on their deathbed they'll come forward and say something but like i said most of the time it's not just only two people or no word spreads quick people confess to their significant others or in a drunk night there's people out there that know and just don't want to come forward. And it's unfortunate, I mean, for multiple reasons, but these kids, this is 1978. These kids were 14 to 20. I mean, they would still, I mean, my math is horrible. I mean, they're in their 40s, 50s right now. I mean, still young with plenty of life. Their life was taken from them way too soon. So their sisters, even their parents are still alive. I mean, living with this, not getting justice. And there's just people out there that are just holding on to this selfishly. Like they're like in their minds, they probably say, Oh, well, they already passed away. They're not going to come back. There's no point in me coming out with this. But like I said, I've never been in this situation, thankfully, but closure is a big deal. Like the family would just like to know, okay, this is who did it. This person will receive justice. Um, and we can end this. I mean, just sitting, thinking, wondering, you know, if they still live in this small town, like, does this murderer still live here? Like, I just could not imagine having to live with that. And it's unfortunate. But for now, like I said, these people are just holding on to this secret. Um, like I said, if we are to, I'm, if, like I said, we have two different cases. We have the first person who shaved his beard, but he could have just been nervous and didn't actually have a connection or we have the guy that just basically gave every single detail to the exact that wasn't in the newspaper have to assume it was probably him. If it wasn't him, then it is just literally unsolved to where they don't aren't even on the right track. But if you have to ask me, I'm going to say that this, um, the last guy, the Forrester guy, the fact that he was able to pinpoint exact information and all this, I'm just going to say it was him. Um, like I said, he has already passed away, but odds are at least one of these other people in his group are still walking among us today. And hopefully one day someone will come forward to put him to justice. That is all I got for today. Really hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at underscore Patrick Simpson. Uh, any still always take suggestions for episodes, any theories you have about anything, theories about this episode, if you want to discuss conspiracy theories, something funny you saw on the news, as always feel free to hit me up and let me know 
um, anything you want to talk about. I'm always an open book. If you haven't subscribed, take a quick second just to press that subscribe button. If you're on Apple or iTunes, really appreciate it. Take a quick second just to leave an honest review so that new people that join the podcast can see what the podcast is about. They don't want to hear it from me because I'm going to give great reviews. So they want to hear from you. So just take a second to leave a quick review. And we'll be back next week with a very new episode. My name is Patrick Simpson, and this is Paranormal.